This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Well, hello and welcome to our first episode in our Smarter Lawcast series on being ESG wise. My name is Meg Lee and I'm the Environment Planning Partner and co-lead of Hall & Wilcox's Environmental, Social and Governance Industry Group. In this season, we're discussing the latest trends in ESG and how to ensure you are ESG wise. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land from which I'm speaking today. I recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people joining us. Today I'm joined by my colleague, Nathan Kennedy, who is my fellow co-lead of the ESG Industry Group and head of our Hall & Wilcox Pro Bono and Communities Group. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you, Meg. Um, I would also like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land I'm speaking from today. Excellent, thank you. Well, ESG is a term that we're hearing more and more. It's fast becoming an essential consideration in risk management and governance of corporations and governments alike. So Nathan, let's start with the obvious question, what is ESG? Well, ESG stands for environmental, social and governance, and it includes operating in ways that meet fundamental responsibilities in the areas of environment, human rights, labour and anti-corruption. Our own ESG policy, um, we define these terms in certain ways. So for the environment, we include considerations about carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions relating to human-induced climate change, biodiversity impact, habitat destruction, including deforestation, ocean acidification and desertification, waste disposal and management, water and other natural resource consumption. In social, we look at um, respect for human rights, identifying and addressing modern slavery risks, supply chain transparency, labor standards, diversity, inclusion and equity in the workplace, including at executive and board levels, community relations, data stewardship and privacy, workplace health and safety and social justice issues. And finally, in governance, we include effective corporate leadership to achieve positive environmental and social outcomes, anti-bribery and corruption measures, board structure, composition and oversight, executive remuneration, political lobbying and financial contributions. So bringing those three elements together, an ESG strategy is really a framework to manage environmental, social and governance impacts and risks, as well as positive contributions that a company can have in its operations. It involves having a culture of integrity, not only upholding basic responsibilities to people and planet, but managing affairs for long-term success. And I guess following on from that, Meg, perhaps you can comment on why clients should consider implementing an ESG framework. Thanks, Nathan. Yeah, look, I, I like to think of it as there's both proactive and reactive reasons to implement an ESG framework. The proactive reason um, to implement a framework, it's really part of good risk management or an extension of existing environmental and social impact risk management frameworks that many larger companies and government entities would already have in place, but combining the, the three elements of ES and G into one framework makes sense for many reasons, um, given the interrelated nature of the risks. And having a rigorous ESG framework will help a director establish that they're being duly diligent in the carrying out of their director's duties. One of the quotes I love from a recent um, ESG 
AFR conference that um, you and I were at, Nathan, was from Re Rebecca McGrath, the chair of the Oz Minerals Council. She said, this is not a woke agenda. This is our knitting. We need to get away from this view that the lefty crowd is taking over the corporate boardrooms. This is about good business and it's about responsible business. So I think the progressive boards are seeing ESG as standard business these days. However, for those not yet on the agenda, and I was actually reading something this morning about in the US, there's an anti-woke agenda going on um, in, in many um, states. Mm -hmm. um, but another reason to adopt the ESG framework for those not on the, on the agenda yet is really the reactive reason. Um, we're finding that clients are under more and more scrutiny from community regulators, shareholders, and financiers to disclose their ESG policies and performance. Supply and value chain scrutiny is causing companies or some companies to scramble somewhat to develop ESG policies so that they can respond to those reporting and disclosure demands from their shareholders and financiers. We're also finding there's an increase in the appetite for litigation by sophisticated and well-funded community and consumer groups where they consider that a company hasn't adequately implemented an ESG framework or has misrepresented their ESG credentials. So I guess with all that added scrutiny, um... Is ESG due diligence and reporting mandatory? Can you give us an overview of that, Meg? Sure. Well, it's actually interesting that um, voluntary reporting um, has been growing rapidly ahead of mandatory regimes. Um, I read the statistic the other day that, in fact, more than 90% of Standards & Poor's 500 companies are now publishing ESG reports, despite that not being mandatory in, in most jurisdictions yet. But one of the outcomes of, of COP26, um, the Conference of the Parties, was the establishment of uh, a new International Sustainability Standards Board to focus on bringing uh, together a standard for ESG reporting. And it's just published and sought feedback on the first of its documents, which is an exposure draft on climate-related disclosures. Mm -hmm. And this is likely to be the key disclosure standard going forward for clients to watch and implement once it is finalised, but there's a, a feedback period at the moment. Um, in the EU, they've also been running a, a parallel process, a consultation period on the um, sustainability reporting standards, the ESRS, and that's just closed. And a common theme in the submissions there was, was the difficulty with the lack of consistency with there not being an international standard. Um, so now that the ISSB has released its exposure draft, I expect that they'll, they'll, they'll try to um, have some commonality. Um, and in the US, the Security Exchange Commission is considering new rules that would require more detailed disclosure, again, of climate-related risks. So a lot of focus on, on climate um, rather than a broader ESG focus, but um, they are considering additional facets of ESG um, as part of that. Closer to home in Australia, there's currently no overall mandatory ESG reporting framework. However, there are a number of requirements to report for certain sectors and depending on the size of a company. Um, so modern slavery reporting is mandatory for companies with turnovers more than 100 million. Um, and the Act is currently undergoing a review as well. And the Albanese government has committed to introducing penalties for non-compliance. So that will really raise the importance of understanding your obligations and reporting on those modern slavery risks. Uh, greenhouse reporting has been mandatory for a while for large companies um, where a single entity emits more than 25 kilotons of, of carbon dioxide equivalent or a corporate group more than 50 kilotons. And ASIC has been quite clear um, that climate related disclosures are now con effectively considered mandatory pursuant to a director's duty under the corporation's law. 
So directors are obliged to continually reassess existing and emerging risks that may be applicable to a company's business, including both physical and transitional climate risk. So boards need to ask if material climate related disclosures have been made and to update those where necessary and appropriate. And the ASIC recommends that the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures, the TCFD, is the current recommended framework by regulators and governance institutes in Australia, at least until the ISSB framework is finalised. And then when that is, I expect that will become a pseudo mandatory framework and considered best practice in Australia. So perhaps Nathan, back to you. Um, you could comment on what um, we're seeing as the key considerations companies should focus on when developing and implementing an ESG policy. Yeah, well, like any uh, risk management framework, it's important for each company to look carefully at their own operations, uh, including value and supply chains, and determine what their ESNG impacts and risks are. And it's also important that all aspects of the E, the S and the G are considered. I mean, what you were just talking about, the, the very... Um, a lot of focus on the climate, but also in modern slavery gets more into the, the S um, side of things. So company should develop cross-functional and skilled teams to bring together all aspects and expertise in, in the three areas. Uh, and, a, and a good example is to look at something like the solar energy industry, which at first blush, you would consider that they can only have a positive environmental impact and would score high on any ESG measurement tool. Um, but when you look at the supply chain and the life cycle for the materials in solar panels, questions then arise about human rights impacts uh, of the mining for the source materials and the environmental and child labour impacts of the waste disposal at the end of life. And in implementing an ESG framework and setting targets, it's crucial that a board and executive teams are well informed about key ESG risks and opportunities. And this is not only important in terms of directors' fiduciary duties, but also helps them lead the company culture. And it's really important to regularly update and ensure that any ESG targets and compliance frameworks keep pace with international developments, as well as guidance materials and standards issued by regulators. So Meg, there seems to be so much going on in the ESG space, um, including what we've talked about today, a lot of developments for clients to keep on top of. What are the, some of the recent trends in Australia that clients really need to be aware of? Yeah, look, I think in summing up, there's really three um, key things to focus on um, that are developing quickly. And firstly, I'd say that's the mandatory ESG reporting. I think that that will come. Um, and I think clients need to get ahead of that and start to implement their ESG frameworks, start to gather data and measure so that they can start to track and determine you know, how they can progress and, and set realistic targets and report on progress for the purposes of um, responding to investor and, and financier and, and regulator queries. And so using the draft um, ISSB standard would be a great place to start. Um, I think secondly, um, a real focus now is on setting net zero targets in light of um, Australia's government's commitment to net zero by 2050. We expect there's there's quite a lot of momentum at the moment for companies to set their own targets. Um, so clients need to seek expert advice in doing this and utilise science-based tools available in doing so. Um, the risk of not doing so carefully is that clients can be accused of greenwashing if their plan to achieve targets is not soundly based in science and backed up by action and regularly updated. And I think thirdly, um, as I mentioned earlier, the increase in litigation by both consumers and regulators in relation to, um, largely in relation to fossil fuel projects and the adequacy of climate change targets in achieving net zero. 
um, clients need to keep an eye on the guidance material issued by the regulators and that's been quite detailed and, and helpful um, and we'll be looking at that in another episode um, but keeping sure they keep abreast of the types of litigation that are being run against companies so they can learn from the types of allegations that are being made and to implement systems to minimise and um, the risk of those claims being brought against them. So thank you for listening to our first episode on being ESG wise. In next week's episode, I will speak to partners Adrian Verdnick, Anne McNamara and Julian Hammond about greenwashing and some of those cases I've just flagged and how to minimise the risk of enforcement action and litigation. So please tune in to the next episode to find out more. We trust that you find the information useful in today's episode and please reach out to us if you have any questions. You can find our details on our website, allandwilcox.com.au, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and follow our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes. Mm-hmm.